Spirit Catholic Radio, KVSS. We are Catholic Radio for the Christian community. Good morning. Welcome to Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and... Chris McGregor. And today, Chris, it's always a delight when we talk to somebody in the first place, but even wonderful, as they say, second, sometimes even third time around. And today we have with us John Salza, author, lawyer, and apologist, frequent speaker on Catholic Radio. And uh, we thank him for being with us here as well. Also the creator of an extensive and popular Catholic apologetic site, www.scripturecatholic.com. His most recent books include The Biblical Basis for the Catholic Faith and Masonry Unmasked, An Insider Reveals the Secrets of the Lodge. John is joining us this morning because we're going to talk about his new book, which is The Biblical Basis for the Papacy. And John, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, and it's good to be back with you. John, I have to tell you, your last appearance with us when we discussed masonry unmasked, we got so many phone calls and emails from folks wanting to get their hands on the book, and just, they were all very positive, but what a response. I'm finding that out. Uh, More and more people are are learning about Freemasonry. Uh, They didn't know that uh, this organization taught the things that it did, and I also mentioned that in addition to, to the book, Masonry and Mask, that you mentioned, I just finished a booklet for the Knights of Columbus, and it's called Why Catholics Cannot Be Masons. It's written strictly from a Catholic perspective. So that's going to be coming out on the next month or two, and I think that'll be very helpful to your audience as well. Well, we'll have you back, because I know that there are uh, plenty of things that we didn't get to touch upon in that discussion. And as you said, people just were not aware we talked about that's because Masonry's done a pretty good job at keeping its teaching secret, and so uh, we're trying to reveal that truth. Well, one thing that's not a secret is the biblical basis for the papacy, though some would say they just never knew. It's never been a secret. It's never been a secret, of course. You know, just from an historical perspective alone, uh, there's only one applicant that, that fits the description, uh-huh. and that's the Roman Catholic Church. If you look at history, we have an unbroken lineage of uh, successors to St. Peter. There's no other church that even claims to have that type of lineage, you know, much less, uh, you know, says that they have it. So uh, historically, uh, we can see that there's the lineage. We see both in the writings of the fathers as well as in Scripture uh, that, that Christ intended to have one man in charge over his flock to represent him, to, to speak in his stead while he is in heaven, and that is the Pope, that's the Vicar of Christ. And that's what this, uh, this book is about, to give the, uh, the readers the biblical basis as well as the patristic, the, the teachings of the Fathers, their, their understanding of the papacy as well. All right. Well, and as you point out uh, right in the introduction, papacy comes from the Italian word papa or pope, uh, which of course means father, and as you point out, describes the Catholic Church's supreme teaching office established by Jesus Christ for Peter and his successors. Sums it up all very nicely. That's right. And uh, Father, you know, the word Father goes back even to the Old Covenant, where we mentioned uh, where in the, in the Old Covenant kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, where, where there was a, uh, a representative of the king, and he was called Father. And so this carries on. And, and one of the things I, I try to do in my book is to show uh, the biblical basis for the papacy by looking at Old Testament uh, words and terminology. And it's a lot of these words, once we get an understanding of what, of how they were uh, understood in the Old Testament, we can see a continuity between the Old and the New and how these Old Testament terms and practices have been now fulfilled completely in the New through the Catholic Church. I love how in all of your work, John, you are, you are such a lawyer because you set up a case in the, where no one can punch holes in it. 
And I find that even when you are describing, especially in the beginning of the book, you want to establish that Peter is indeed the first among the apostles. And you back that up with so many illustrations. Yeah, you know, I've always taken the approach of, of, of understanding the opponent's argument. I mean, that's very important. And we're talking about our Protestant friends who, who, who don't believe as we do. And so it's important for all Catholics, obviously, to know our faith, but to know what they believe as well. And, and part of my you know, personal journey was to evaluate all of the evidence and, and you know, using my God-given intellects and my reasoning ability to make a conclusion. And so it's important uh, when we deal with Protestants, not just to heap upon them what the Church teaches, but to understand you know, what they believe. And so if we can approach it maybe from their perspective and show why there are some errors in, in their reasoning and, and the way we look at things, I think that really goes a long way to, to witnessing. Just even in that first chapter where Peter is the rock of the church, you point out that Protestants invariably argue that the church is built upon the Bible until they are confronted with Jesus' words in Matthew sixteen eighteen. That's right. The scripture never says that uh, the church is, is built upon scripture uh, at all. In fact, the faith has always been, as the scripture tells us, built upon persons, because when Christ came, he established a kingdom. And kingdoms aren't ruled by books, you know, they're ruled by people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we bring this out as Jesus names Simon Peter and says, You, Peter, you are the rock of the church. You are the the rock upon which I will build my church. You are the person. And we also, you know, some Protestants say, well, when you use Matthew 16, you know, he was using rock metaphorically, you know. But if you go back to John 1.42, you see that Jesus calls Peter rock in that verse as well. He says Cephas, which is a transliteration of the Aramaic kepha, which means rock. And so it's very clear that Jesus does rename Simon Rock. The next question is then, what does he mean by it? Yeah, the naming of a person in the Scripture, or should I say the renaming, is a very significant action, isn't it? It certainly is. And again, this is one of the elements that comes through the Old Testament, where we see uh, uh, people uh, who are very significant in salvation history being renamed by God. Uh, and God doesn't do meaningless things. When he, when he takes an action like that, there's something behind it that's very significant. And when he renames somebody, he changes their spiritual status. He changes their role. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. For example, Abram. When Abram was designated to be the father, uh, the, the founding father of, of the nation of Israel, he was, his name was changed from Abram to Abraham. You know, we see this, uh, you know, with other figures in the Old Testament. Even with Our Lady, Mary, when the angel says, Hail, full of grace, that is a, a, titular, a titular phrase, a title that, he, that the angel gives Mary. And then we say, see the same thing with Simon Peter. Just as Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Christos, Jesus then uh, offers this exchange and says, you, you, Simon, are now Peter the Petros. And so there's a dynam- dynamic exchange there of titles, which means that Peter's role was changed. Simon's uh, was, was uh, changed from being a, a fisherman to being uh, the rock of the church. What I find interesting is that when there are people out there that will take the Greek and try to even change its meaning so that somehow he's uh, not a big rock but a little rock. And that's very odd, isn't it? That's very odd. That's one of the things that I address in the book. For some reason, you know, the, the word rock in Greek is, is Petra, and it's similar in Italian, Pietra. 
And when you read the Greek text of Matthew 16, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, which inspired the text, uses Petros. And so Protestants try to drive a wedge there between the Greek word for rock, Petra, and Petros, and they, they try to make a distinction. Well, uh, you know, Matthew didn't call Peter the, the Petra, he called him the Petros, so there's got to be a difference. Peter can't really be the rock, but of course that, that's... That's not at all the case. If you know, if you have a you know, just a rudimentary understanding of biblical Greek, uh, the, the masculine is required uh, mm-hmm. there. Just as is, as an Italian, for example, my father's name is Peter, mm-hmm. and the Italian would require a a masculine use of Peter, which would be Pietro, not Pietra. You see, mm-hmm. Pietra is feminine, Pietro is masculine, and so Petros is just li- simply the the masculine form of Petra. That that's all that that means. As you so beautifully do in the biblical basis for the papacy, you take on that discussion of the the naming and the importance of why Peter is the rock of the church. But then you also go into the important role that he plays when we talk about how he was given the keys to the kingdom and how he has the authority to bind and loose. Now, and those are areas which people struggle with that they just don't accept it at face value. They've got to try to dissect that all apart as well. Yeah, this is so very important, because when Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom, and then he says, Peter, whatever you bind or loose on earth is bound or loosed in heaven. Think about how dramatic that statement is. And essentially, he's telling Peter, you know, what you do on earth, I'm going to ratify in heaven. And this is very important, because Scripture says God cannot lie. He cannot deceive us. And so if Jesus is giving Peter the authority to declare on earth what is declared in heaven, and God cannot lie, this must necessarily mean that somehow Peter is protected from binding us to error. Because God could not make such a sweeping promise to Peter if he didn't intervene and protect Peter's teachings, his binding and his loosing from error. And so that gives us the assurance that God really is in control. Christ is the head of the church, but he shares the, his, his infallibility with his vicar, with Peter, while Peter is on earth. What I found interesting, John, was how you went back and connected the Old Testament illustrations of that particular action that so what Jesus did was really a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do with Peter. That's right. If we go back to Isaiah 22, that's the only place in scripture where you see the word keys used in the context of a kingdom mm-hmm. and how keys are used to open and shut. And when you read Isaiah 22, it talks about the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of David. Uh, where David had a king, he had successors uh, to the king. Hezekiah was the king at this time. It was around 715 B.C., and he had a uh, prime minister or a steward, a a vicar, whose name was Shebna. He was the chief steward. And we see here that Shebna wasn't doing his job properly, and God intervened and said, I'm going to pass the key uh, from Shebna uh, all the way to uh, Eliakim. Mm -hmm. Eliakim has the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and Eliakim is given the authority over the subjects of the kingdom as he rules in the place of Hezekiah the king to open and shut. It's very similar to the terms bind and loose. And that gave the steward uh, of the king the authority 
uh, both in disciplinary matters as well as teaching authority. He would rule in the king's stead while the king was away. And when Jesus mentions keys and kingdom in Matthew 16, the Jews would have immediately recognized what Jesus was talking about. Jesus would be talking about the kingdom that he, as Messiah, came to restore. And they would have immediately recognized that he was now putting Peter in charge by giving Peter the keys to the kingdom. Uh, so Peter now would have uh, rule, ruling and governing authority over the subject of the, king, uh, of the kingdom and rule in the king's stead. I think a very important point you bring out in the book, too, is that this was delegation, not relinquishment. A very, That's very important That's action. Correct. We're talking about the king being in charge. Jesus is still in charge. But because he is not visibly with us, he's delegated his authority to his vicar. Just like he delegates his authority to his bishops and his priests, his bishops to, to rule in their varying jurisdictions, and his bishops and priests to confect the sacrament of the Eucharist, to forgive sins, uh, to administer extreme unction and the like. And so uh, the whole Catholic faith is built upon the notion that what Christ has received from the Father, he has given to his priests, and he has given uh, the authority to his pope, and then all the bishops in union with the Pope, uh, both for ruling and governing and, and sacramental authority. So it's very, very scriptural. When we talk about the loosing and the binding of sins, what exactly are we talking about? Because I think with loosing, the forgiving of sins we're familiar with, but the retaining or the binding of sins is something that I don't think we, we fully comprehend. That's a great uh, question, because a lot of times our Protestants will say, yeah, okay, uh, Jesus gave to Peter and the apostles the authority to forgive sins, what he was really doing was giving all Christians the authority to forgive one another. Well, of course, that's not what Jesus was talking about, uh, and there are a number of rebuttals to that, but uh, you bring up an important one. Jesus just didn't give uh, Peter and the apostles the authority to forgive a sin, but also to retain sin, not just mm -hmm. the authority to loose, but the authority to bind. And what the Church understands that to mean is that the Church has the authority to remit the temporal punishment due to sin as well, uh, and to hold penitents, uh, or to bind penitents in their sins if they're not contrite, if they're not, uh, uh, if they're not repentant. And so the Church has this authority over sin, and again, it's the authority of Jesus Christ over souls that he's given to the Church. And so the, the authority to, to retain sin is, is the authority to both loose the temporal punishments that are due to our sins, as well as to hold uh, an individual in their sin and withhold forgiveness if they're not repentant. Mm. Now, it's very clear, I would say, that Peter was indeed the leader of the early church. Basically, you have to have a read of the Acts of the Apostles. You can appreciate that. Isn't it uh, pretty clear in the yeah. end that Peter takes charge immediately? And we see this in the very first chapter where he appoints a successor to Judas uh, who committed suicide. And so he, he, he immediately... Uh, invokes an act of authority, and he's not questioned by anybody. And it's also interesting to note that Peter relies on some very obscure psalms when he makes his decision, and so we see in the book of Acts that Peter is rendering a judgment upon the proper interpretation of Scripture. And by the way, these Scriptures are not very clear about, about uh, applying to the Church and to apostolic succession, but Peter takes the lead in interpreting them, and nobody questions his authority. 
Mm-hmm. They knew that he had the keys to the kingdom. They knew that Christ came to restore the kingdom, which is both the kingdom on earth and in heaven, and Peter was in charge. Nobody questions his authority, and that's how the, the, the Acts of the Apostles proceeds. Peter making decisions, uh, binding and loosing, and he's leading the church, and no one questions him. I would imagine in the minds of uh, many Protestants and even some Catholics that may not feel they're very catechized, they can understand potentially that role that Peter played in the early church. Okay, he was the leader, and yes, he was given this authority. But how does it remain in Rome? Why is Rome so significant? Well, Jesus Christ wanted to to found his church in Rome. You know, Rome was really the center of of civilization at that point, Mm -hmm. and it was the center of paganism, and Christ wanted to set up his kingdom uh, to to counter paganism. I mean, that's that's one reason uh, why uh, the church was set up in Rome, really as as a a counter-kingdom to the kingdom of Satan. This was the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. But it also plays into that whole understanding of what apostolic succession is. What came after Peter? Yeah, this goes back to the keys as well, uh, because as we saw in in, uh, Isaiah 22, the keys just didn't give the steward the authority to open and shut or or bind and loose, but it also facilitated succession to the chair. And so the keys, as we see in Isaiah 22, pass from Shebna to Eliakim. It facilitates succession so that there is always a representative for the king. And that's what we see again uh, in Scripture, with with Jesus giving the keys to Peter. And historically, we see that those keys passed immediately from Peter to St. Linus. And and nobody's ever questioned that until the Protestant Reformation 1,600 years later. This was never questioned. We have an unbroken lineage. It was never questioned. You, You don't find anything. In, in in the writings, of, otherwise you'd have to conclude that the Church had it all wrong for 1,600 years. Right. It, just, it just doesn't make any sense. And of course, you know, even logically we can say, well, if Christ had delegated such authority to Peter while Peter was living, would not he want that authority to continue? Mm-hmm. He certainly knew that Peter was a man and he was going to die someday, but he wanted his Church to carry on, and he promised that he would be with the Church to the end of the age, to the end of time, and so that necessarily requires somebody to succeed to Peter and so forth, and that's what we have through our current Holy Father, Pope Benedict. Yeah, and I think it's uh, very important to point out here too, John, that the fact that, uh, as you point out in the book, having one man in charge, having the Pope overseeing everything prevents a lot of the divisions and chaos uh, that certainly we see in a lot of the the Protestant and evangelical circles is there are, what, some 30,000 different Protestant denominations today. Yeah, that's right. You know, theologians say, uh, they use the the term subsist. They say that that unity subsists in the truth. You know, without unity, truth will be compromised. You have to have uh, one person in charge, which is Christ, but he's given that authority uh, to Peter. And even in, in the context of talking about Protestants who believe that the Bible is, is their only authority, I mean, that, that argument is self-defeating because the Bible cannot interpret itself. You need an authority outside of Scripture to tell you what the words mean. Mm-hmm. In fact, you need an authority outside of Scripture to tell you what the Scriptures even are. Right. The books themselves don't tell us, and so this appeals to our reason. I mean, these are the arguments that I've seen Protestants have to say, yeah, you know, that makes sense. I mean, it's just, it's just something that's true, and of course, truth can penetrate our heart, and this is, I think, one of the, the, the steps toward converting that Protestants take when they, when they come back to the Catholic faith, this notion that, yes, 
and there has to be uh, unity uh, if there is truth. I had a tremendous blessing recently, John, where I was able to travel to Rome, and one of the churches we visited was St. John Lateran, and there was the throne of Peter, that even it's one of those few objects in the church that actually has a feast day. And I never appreciated until I read your book the Old Testament connection to the importance of the chair of Peter, whether it is that actual chair or even the the symbolism of why the throne would be so important. That's right, and this goes back again to the Old Testament. If you look at, uh, for example, Exodus 18.13, where it says that Moses sat to judge the people, Moses was God's representative who sat to judge, to render judgments, to make disciplinary decrees. And this notion of the the chair of Moses, Jesus refers to that uh, in the New Testament Scripture, uh, where he refers to the seat uh, of Moses. And and this is something that the Church simply adopted in the New Covenant to, uh, to symbolize the authority of the new chief steward of the kingdom, which would be Peter and his successors. And so that's why we refer to the chair of Peter, and we sometimes refer to Peter's and his successors' official teaching as ex-cathedra, or from the chair teaching. That's why the, the Church uses that terminology. Also the laying on of hands in that ability for a bishop to pass on that apostolic succession to bring other bishops in, that's an authority that has its roots in the Old Testament as well. It's all over the Old Testament. Uh, for example, you know, the Lord tells Moses to take Joshua and to lay your hands upon him. Uh, uh, that was the, the ritual that God, you know, humans didn't d- design that. God said, that's the way I want you to uh, facilitate succession and to transfer authority. And so it should be no surprise to to our Protestant friends that God builds upon that revelation by employing the same techniques in the New Covenant. And so immediately we see in the book of Acts where the apostles wanted to expand uh, the, the authority within the Church to cover more jurisdictions, and so they, just like Moses did, they laid hands. And so they, this was the beginning of the, the sacrament of holy orders that Christ instituted. I'm sure Jesus told them that that's how they were supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. And he left it to the Church to determine exactly how, in terms of what rituals they would use, but certainly they were required to lay hands, and we see that uh, throughout the centuries down to the present day, where a man is ordained by his bishop through the laying out of hands. It goes all the way back thousands and thousands of years ago. Well, even outside of Scripture, and as you point out, the biblical basis for the papacy, I think one of the strongest witnesses is that of the early church fathers, the one who immediately, in some cases, knew the apostles, and bear that sacred tradition for us and give us witness to the, the primacy of the papacy. I think this is one of the most compelling things uh, from an historical perspective, because there is not one single early church father uh, who disputed the Catholic understanding of the papacy. Not mm-hmm. one. They all talked about Peter being the rock of the church, Peter alone possessing the keys to the kingdom of heaven, his authority to forgive sins. For example, Augustine says that the keys give the authority to the Pope uh, to forgive and retain sin. Uh, uh, they talk about the kingdom being the church. They all refer also to the Roman Catholic Church, as the church that Christ founded upon the rock of Peter and his successors. And so for anybody who is honestly looking for the truth, if you go back to history, as, as Cardinal Newman said, you cease to be Protestant, because you see there 
uh, in the writings of the fathers, they all had a, a unanimous understanding of the papacy, and it's the Catholic understanding, the understanding that we hold today. Right. Well, and I think, too, uh, John, as you point out, the Catholics, and in essence, a lot of Christians certainly realize the fact that scriptures were received through the Catholic Church, and in fact, uh, the Catholic Church itself predates New Testament. No question. I mean, if you read the Acts of the Apostles, you know, that covers, uh, you know, the first 15 chapters probably covers the first 15 years of the Church. Well, look look at the decisions that were made during that time about... Uh, uh, Christians no longer, for example, uh, having the requirement to be circumcised and many other decisions that the Church made during that period. Mm-hmm. Well, the Scriptures were being write, uh, written at that time, but we didn't have a canon of Scripture. They weren't all completed, and in fact, they were even debated until uh, the end of the 4th century. When Pope Damasus, and this again is uh, history, uh, made a decision in 382 about what the canon of Scripture was, and these, uh, his decision was affirmed by later popes at later regional councils at the end of the 4th century, and then finally by the Council of Trent, which dogmatized that decision in, uh, in uh, the 16th century. So again, there's, there's the historical evidence for the Catholic Church determining what the canon was, uh, and it's the same canon we hold today. And I love this argument because I always say, well, if Protestants accept, for example, the 27 books of the New Testament, they believe that that's the canon, that's an infallible decision of the Catholic Church. If that canon is not infallible, and there are other books that should have been in there, or we got the wrong books, then your faith you know, is unfounded. You, know, you can't wave the Bible on Sundays and say, this is the Word of God, if you're not sure it's the Word of God. Right. And that compromises their entire faith, and so they must admit that the Church made an infallible decision, they got that one right. On what basis, then, do they reject the Church's other teachings? And those same fathers that put that together are the same ones who witness in their writings the primacy of not only Peter and the Pope, but of Rome. You're absolutely correct. Uh, the fathers who were involved in determining the canon of Scripture are the same fathers who had their hands laid on, him, on them, who had apostolic succession, who claimed membership in the Catholic Church in obedience to the Vicar of Christ, Peter, and their successors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just don't know how you can, I guess I you can if you put on blinders, but if you really are truly searching, you need to be open to the entire witness that they bear. Yeah, you know, we can sympathize with them a little bit because the the church certainly of the first century doesn't resemble the church of today. Mm-hmm. But why is that? Well, the church is the body of Christ, okay? So it's a, it's a living organism, and it changes. Its appearance changes over time. And Jesus said that, you know, the mustard seed would grow into a large tree. And so he said that the appearance of the church certainly would change, but it, in its essence and its substance, it's exactly the same church. There's only one body. There aren't multiple bodies. It's the same body. It's growing over time, you know, just like uh, an infant becomes uh, an adult. I mean, we're dealing with a living organism here. And I think some Protestants will look at the church and they, they will look for the Bible, and they don't see cardinals in the in the Bible, they don't see all these other things, maybe all these... Uh, accoutrements, you know, that surround the Catholic faith, and on that basis they may reject it. But if they look into history and they understand the succession and the historicity of the, of the papacy and, and how the Church gave us really the teachings of Christianity, the teachings and the dogmas of Jesus Christ, of the Trinity, all these things come from the Catholic Church, with which they believe, but it had to come from somewhere. And then history tells us it came from the Catholic Church. Right. And I think, uh, John, too, probably a, a lot of things that 
uh, Catholics sometimes have difficulty explaining or articulating to our non-Catholic or Protestant brothers and sisters. You know, one of the couple of the linchpin things that you think of right off the top are we worship Mary, and the other thing is the fact that uh, we exalt the Pope and the Church over scriptures and so on and so forth. For any of our non-Catholic friends who might be listening, could you please explain why that is not true? Sure. We don't exalt the Pope at all over uh, the written Word of God or the oral Word of God. The Pope is there to safeguard the truth that Christ gave us. And so um, it's not subject to you know the whims and opinions of, of, the, of the congregation. Jesus Christ gave us a deposit of faith, which is unchanging. It can never change. It exists in both the written word and the unwritten word, which is called sacred tradition. So sacred scripture and sacred tradition. But there must be a means by which uh, we uh, come to understand the meaning of, of these revelations. And Christ has given us uh, that method through the Pope and, and through the Church. And so the, the Pope has been called the servant of the servants of God, and the magisterium, which is the teaching office of the Church, is the servant of Scripture and tradition. It's there to interpret it, to transmit it to future generations, and to safeguard it, to preserve its integrity. So this is about being uh, being at the service of the truth of Christ's revelation, which he's entrusted to the Church. It's necessary if, you know, if us as, as fallible human beings, we can really mess this stuff up, which we see in Protestantism with all their denominations. Christ didn't you know, let this, uh, his revelation go by, by chance, by, by whims and opinions. He gave us a means by which it would be protected. And that's ultimately top-down, Christ and his vicar, the Pope, through the Church. Well said. What I find, John, is when I talk to those people who have issues with the papacy, whether they're Protestants or even Catholics, that after you're able to have the discussion that you helped to facilitate in the biblical basis for the papacy, I've said to them, go back and actually read the writings of even the last five popes that we've had and tell me that what they have to give us isn't wonderfully rich fruit. We've just been very blessed, especially in the last century or so, with the with the popes that have led the church. We sure have, and we can go back, you know, many many centuries. Uh, yes, the the faith uh, has been preserved. That deposit of faith that Christ gave never changes, but we come to deeper understandings of that faith by the guidance of the Holy Spirit that Christ promised to give to the church to guide us into all truth, and that happens, you know, again, not by everybody having their own opinions about what Scripture and tradition means, but through the Pope, you know, through that office that Christ gave uh, to Peter, this office that is perpetuated through the passing of the keys. And so, you know, I think that that just appeals to reason. You know, if we, mm-hmm. we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe that there has to be a way for us to understand his truth, not that we're leaving it to everybody's opinion, but that he really did give us a way, and of course he did. Yeah. Talking this morning with John Salza, author of the book, The Biblical Basis for the Papacy. And John, before we wrap up, any uh, final thoughts, maybe something that uh, you wanted to touch on that maybe we didn't? I think we covered the, the basics. You know, I just hope that this book, uh, first of all, you know, brings Catholics to a deeper appreciation of, of the papacy, that the Pope really represents Jesus Christ, and we have a deposit of faith. We can be assured that, that, it, uh, that it's been entrusted uh, to the popes, and uh, you know we should be very grateful for what we as Catholics have received. And then I hope that our Protestant friends take the time to read the early Church Fathers, 
mm-hmm. uh, instead of listening you know, to the 21st century pastors, yeah. why not listen to the Christians that were the closest to Christ and the apostles? Let's see what they had to say. That's my hope for our Protestant friends. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, John, again, thank you so much for writing the book. Again, it's called The Biblical Basis of the Papacy and for spending some great quality time with us and our listeners this morning. Always a joy to have you on with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.